Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Come Follow Me Insights by Book of Mormon Central. Today, 3 Nephi 17 through 19. And we encourage you to check out our Scripture Plus app. We've added a new feature called Reading Plans. It's a great way to be immersed in the Scriptures and have guidance from another thoughtful reader of the Scriptures who's taken the time to help you see new insights and new ways of engaging with the Scriptures. All right, let's uh, jump right in today with a very, very quick overview <clears throat> of the Savior's visit among the Nephites and the Lamanites. So you got the destruction in chapters 8 through 10, then sometime thereafter we get his, his appearance in chapter 11. Then he gives that famous sermon at the temple in 12 through 14, followed by his discourse on the house of Israel the Jews, the scattered Israelites, the Gentiles, and how the gospel is going to be moving through and, and among those different groups as time progresses. <clears throat> then right at the very end of chapter 16, here's Jesus. He's got this, this multitude at the temple in front of him, and he's been – it's been a long day. So starting here, this is where the day begins. It, you can imagine all of the experiences in chapter 11 alone being emotionally and cognitively just fulfilling and then eventually overwhelming as far as them trying to stay stay focused and concentrating on everything that he's teaching. Then you get to the end of chapter 16 and what happens? He quotes a little section from Isaiah. So you'll notice at the finishing point of this little, little quotation at the end of chapter 16, he opens 17 by saying, Behold, now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked round about again on the multitude, and he said unto them, Behold, my time is at hand. I perceive that ye are weak, that ye cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. So, notice this pattern. He's, he's in the middle of teaching the people things that he was commanded of the Father to teach unto them at that time. It's as if he had a, a lesson outline, so to speak, but that lesson outline was given to him by the Father. I love this. I love the fact that here's Jesus. <clears throat> he's perfect. He's complete. He's finished. He's resurrected. He's a god. He's exalted. He, he's arrived. And what is he doing? He's keeping commandments. He's still keeping commandments of Heavenly Father. I love that, that he doesn't seem to see commandments as burdens or as, as distractions of what he wants to do, but rather it's the focal point of his life, even as a resurrected, glorified God, he's still honoring and obeying the commands of his of, of Heavenly Father. I love that for my own life and for our life, to not see commandments as a burden, 
but to see them as a, as a means whereby we can put God first and in so doing, watch what he does to, to magnify and multiply our efforts and our lives and our joys and our blessings and our prosperity and our peace. So, <clears throat> notice what's happening. Jesus has made it somewhere to about this point in what he was commanded to teach the people. And now, <clears throat> after quoting this little Isaiah block and this, this long section, after, a, in, after an incredible discourse, the Sermon of the Temple, he notices that they're weak. We don't know exactly what that means, but being a human being ourselves, we can probably relate to the situation where you've been in a classroom setting or in a conference setting where you want desperately to, to pay close attention and to hang on every word, but your body might be physically weak or your mind might be cognitively overloaded, you might be a little bit exhausted, and you can picture maybe some people looking a bit weary in the crowd and maybe some zoned-out looks. I, I don't know if that's what was happening here with the Nephites and Lamanites, but whatever it was, Jesus perceived it. A good teacher, a good parent, a good leader doesn't just go through a lesson plan. They don't just dump out everything that they want to do. They're perceiving the needs of the audience in front of them, whether it be their child or children or a flock, a congregation, uh, in a work setting. You're constantly getting a pulse. How are people doing with what I'm sharing? Where, where are they? So Jesus recognizes that they're weak, and so he says, verse 3, because of that, therefore, go ye unto your homes – notice he didn't say, go to your clubs, go to your organizations, go hang out with your friends – he said, go to your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. Because you'll notice, Jesus isn't going to disregard the commands of his Father in heaven. He will fulfill those commandments. He will teach them everything that he has been asked to teach them. He's just going to delay it a little bit. This reminds me of, uh, of something that I love from President Monson when he was the prophet, the phrase that he used on a couple of occasions, there is no problem to be solved that's more important than a person to be loved. People are always more important than programs and procedures and practices, and Jesus is tuned in to people and what their needs are, realizing it's not going to do any good. He could force his way through this entire list of teachings. He could do that, but it wouldn't be effective, and it wouldn't bless lives the way it could if he waits until they're ready for it. So that's just something for us to, to consider in our parenting and in our leading and in our friendships that we have is, you may be absolutely right, and you may absolutely want to cram something down somebody's throat, so, so to speak, but it won't likely change any hearts or minds or lives if we do it that way. But if we follow the Savior's example, we perceive where people are and we adapt and we adjust dynamically with a focus and a care and concern on, on the, the people themselves. And what's so beautiful about these stories is what happens in chapter 17 of what does Jesus do, right? So he is following the commands of the Father, but he also understands he's talking to real people who have real needs, 
This will meet their needs, but we encourage you to pay attention closely to chapter 17. What does he choose to do? He eventually does get through all this, but does it happen here in chapter 17? Or are there other activities that happen? So as you think about in your own life, if you're ever in a situation where you're called to teach, or to parent, or to provide friendship, and you have a plan for what you're gonna do, great, right? It's really hard to succeed without a plan, but also be willing to be perceptive and to think through, how can I put a pause here? Look at 17 and look at the example that Jesus provides of how does he actually meet the needs of the people right then and there so that they are more fully prepared to receive the word. Now, Jesus got their attention by telling them that he was leaving and going to come back tomorrow and go to your homes and prepare your minds. At that point, if there had been, we don't know for sure, but if there had been anybody who was kind of nodding off or, or looking a little distracted or, or zoning out in any degree, nobody's doing that now. He, he's got their attention and they're all looking at him. And notice that uh, verse 5 says, it came to pass that when Jesus had thus spoken, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude, and behold, they were in tears and did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know, I don't have any authority for these things, but I can't imagine these people sitting there looking at Jesus with tears in their eyes and the thoughts and the feelings coming from them being, oh, Jesus, please stay a little longer and tell us more about the house of Israel or preach more about the Jews and the Gentiles and the scattered Israelites and how it's all going to come together, as important as that is, and we, we're going to get that. Like Taylor said, it's going to come in subsequent chapters. But I don't think they were – those tears were communicating, we want more for our mind at this point. I think, personally, that those tears are communicating, Jesus, we just want to be with you more, more of this kind of an experience, not necessarily this kind of an experience. They're, they're probably a little bit on cognitive overload at this point with the, the, the enormity of all these things that they've been learning from him. So I love the fact that Jesus responds as follows, verse 6, and he said unto them, Behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Have you any sick that are among you? Bring them hither. Have you any that are lame or blind or halt or maimed or leprous or that are withered or that are deaf or that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither, and I will heal them, for I have compassion upon you. My bowels are filled with mercy. So then this beautiful opportunity for the people to, to bring their sick and their afflicted to Christ, for him to, to perform his miracles that, that the people in the New Testament account had witnessed on multiple occasions, now these Book of Mormon people are going to get to experience a different aspect or a different side of the Savior's love and mercy and grace not just in his teachings and in his testifying, but now at a very deep level, he's going to open his heart and they're going to feel some things and they're going to experience some things that are really profound in this chapter. Notice what happens, verse 8, for I perceive 
that ye desire that I should show unto you what I have done unto your brethren at Jerusalem. There it is again. It's just this little word, perceive. It showed up over the beginning of verse 2. Here it is again in verse 8. It's, to me, this is the essence of parenting, good leadership, good teaching, is perception of the needs of the, of the, the audience, the target audience that you're, you're working with. So Jesus perceives again. Verse 9, it came to pass that when he had thus spoken, all the multitude with one accord did go forth with their sick and their afflicted and their lame and with their blind and with their dumb and with all them that were afflicted in any manner, and notice how he did it. He did heal them, every one, as they were brought forth unto him. Implication of the language there is, is that he didn't have a big crowd of, of sick folk and say, in mass, you're all healed. That isn't how he usually does things, right? It seems that he healed them every one as they were brought forth unto him. That one-by-one care and concern for, for the individual. I just, I love that because, yes, it's an infinite atonement that covers everyone, but the power for me lies in the personal nature of that atonement, that Jesus knows me personally, independently of everybody else, and he knows you, and he knows what you're struggling with, and he, he perceives exactly what you need in order to be healed and to be made whole, and that's what's happening with these people. Following that remarkable experience, verse 11 says he commanded that their little children should be brought. So, they brought their little children and set them down upon the ground round about him, and Jesus stood in the midst and the multitude gave way till they had all been brought unto him. There's a little subtle uh, teaching buried in that verse that sometimes we overlook. We would all love dearly to be close to Jesus, but brothers and sisters, there's one thing I would love more than that, and that would be to have my children be close to Jesus, which means the multitude gave way they they backed off, and it's not like they – don't read too much into this – it's not like they're departing from Jesus. The reality is, is the Savior's in the middle and the crowd makes room for these children and then the adults and the, the, the people who, who we've been talking about, they make way so that Jesus can stand in the midst of all these, these little children that are around him. And thus begins, in my opinion, uh, one of the sweetest and most uh, tender parts of the entire Book of Mormon story. In all 531 pages, this to me um, gives us a glimpse into the heart of the Savior as well as any, any other place in the book can from, from my perspective. Uh, notice verse 13, it came to pass that when they had all been brought, Jesus stood in the midst, he commanded the multitude that they should kneel down upon the ground. And verse 14, it came to pass when they had knelt upon the ground, Jesus groaned within himself and said, Father, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. Isn't that interesting? He's surrounded by little children and his heart is groaning within him. He's troubled because of the wickedness, not because of 
the wickedness of the little children, but he sees this purity sitting in front of him, he sees their smiles, he sees the look in their faces, and it troubles him concerning the wickedness of the house of Israel, and he's groaning. He's going to give you glimpses into his heart in these next few uh, verses that are, are beautiful. Um, how do you come to know somebody that you've never met before? How do you emulate their example if you've never met them personally in life, in mortality? I think you learn their stories. You see how they act in certain situations. You see how they treat people. You see how they respond when, when certain situations arise. And in this case, I think we're going to see the Savior's character revealed. His, his uh, heart is going to be revealed in ways that it's pretty hard to find a better example than this as to what kind of a person the man, the, the, the God, this exalted being named Jesus Christ, uh, as far as trying to come to know him better and understand him better, pay close attention as we proceed here. Verse 15, when he had said these words, he himself also knelt upon the earth, and behold, he prayed unto the Father. Here he is an exalted, glorified God, and he's not just keeping commandments, he's also continuing to pray to the Father. So prayer isn't just this thing that we we do because it's a checklist thing for members of the church to, to mark off every day, yep, I said my prayers. Prayer is this essential connecting thread that binds us to the God who gave us life, and Jesus is still doing it right here. The things which he prayed cannot be written, and the multitude did bear record who heard him. And after this manner do they bear record, the eye hath never seen neither hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father." And it goes on to say, no tongue can even speak these words. That's how profound his prayer is. Now notice verse 18. It came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of praying unto the Father, he arose. But so great was the joy of the multitude that they were overcome. And it came to pass that Jesus spake unto them and bade them arise, and they arose from the earth, and he said unto them, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now behold, my joy is full. That's profound. The, the audience is overwhelmed. I think you and I can probably relate to this in the sense of being in a crowd where you're just overwhelmed with joy, and everybody feels it together, unified. They're, they're all in this same a wrapped-up feeling of, of the Lord's love, of the Spirit, hearing him pray, and they're overwhelmed, and he says, my joy is full. Now notice verse 21, when he had said these words, he wept, and the multitude bear record of it. And he took their little children one by one, and he blessed them, and he prayed unto the Father for them. Once again, for me, <clears throat> To, to have a personal experience with the Savior like these people have had would be remarkable. The only thing better that I can imagine would be to witness and watch a personal experience of the Savior blessing and praying to the Father while holding my children one by one by one. There's, there's nothing that could compare to that. And notice when he had done this, verse 22, he wept again. Interesting. 
he weeps, then takes their children one by one and, and ministers to them and prays to the Father, and then he wept again. I'm just going to ask a really simple question here. How would you, <clears throat> how would you describe the world's perspective, or perspective on children? And I mean when I say the world, I mean uh, society and, and culture and in some ways the, the popular media, the popular aspects of our, of our culture. How is family portrayed? How are children portrayed? How are they seen? <clears throat> in some circles you might see them as uh, expensive, in the way, annoying, loud, they prevent you from fulfilling all of the things that you want to self-fulfill, uh, and they bind you down. All of these negative aspects can come out sometimes in the way children are viewed, are viewed or portrayed in media or in, in the, the cultural conversations. Now let me ask a second question. <clears throat> How does the Savior, based on the text here in chapter 17, how does Jesus feel about children? How does he feel about little ones? Brothers and sisters, for me, verse 21 and 22 teach me more about the character of Christ than if he had given this long 20-chapter sermon and discourse about how he feels about children. The fact that you see him standing in the midst of children and weeping as he looks at them and then taking them one by one and blessing them and praying to the Father for them, and then once he had done that, he weeps again. Those tears to me speak volumes about what kind of a person, what kind of a being Jesus is and how he feels about children, and consequently, I want to be more like him and I want to reflect more of his attributes and characteristics and perfections as I strive through mortality. And so if you analyze that from that perspective, as a culture we have a lot of room to grow and improve in how we treat children and little ones and how we see them and perceive them. Once he had finished this, <clears throat> verse 24, as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes towards heaven and they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven, as it were, in the midst of fire, and they came down and encircled those little ones about, and they were encircled about with fire, and the angels did minister unto them." You'll notice how heaven feels about little children. My wife and I have had uh, ten children. People have asked, Brother Griffin, how do you and your wife take care of and love sufficiently ten children, I don't have a good answer for you other than we have experienced a phenomenon with every birth that it's not a matter of saying, I only have this much love to give and now it's going to have to be divided one step even further than it was before. Love doesn't get divided in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love gets multiplied. With each child coming into the home, they bring with them. It's as these angels coming down, descending from heaven, ministering, it's that same idea. These children bring with them this package of love 
that multiplies, and there's enough and to spare uh, in a in a family, regardless of what that family size is, whether it's just a husband and a wife, or a husband and wife with one child, or ten children, or adopted children, it doesn't matter. Heaven isn't looking at things the way we are. God loves little children. And can I just add something here? You don't have to be a parent or even married to nurture and care for little children, to be a ministering angel to, to the little ones. Uh, l- let me illustrate this with a few, a few real-life examples. My wife has an aunt who's never been married, and we we affectionately call her Auntie Karen. Karen has been a blessing in my wife's life ever since the day she was born. She's been there uh, celebrating the successes, crying through the struggles. She's been there giving counsel, encouragement, and advice. Auntie Karen has become a ministering angel in many ways to our children. She's a part of our family, and and we feel of God's love coming to our children now through her in so many ways, and it's beautiful to watch that, to watch those those relationships being being forged and strengthened with, with this incredible daughter of God. Another example, uh, my wife has an uncle named Reed, and he has been such a blessing to our family and to many other families in so many ways. He knows everything about science, about the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, and every time he starts explaining things about how they work, and telling stories, it's amazing to watch my children just come and gather around him, and as I sit back and watch those experiences, I can see God's love and God's goodness and his light and his truth being brought into the lives of my children through Uncle Reed, who in all of those moments is in every way, shape, and form a ministering angel. And yet some of the greatest lessons that we have learned from Uncle Reed have come through watching him endure intense physical pain and setbacks with his health. Uh, A third and final example, my my wife has a dear friend, a college roommate from years ago named Susan that my children now call Aunt Susan. She has come as, as our adopted aunt, she visits every year. She loves, she nurtures, she reads to, she blesses, she feeds and helps our children for a, for a short week or a few days every year, and they have grown to look forward to those visits, and they love her, and they feel of God's love through her, even though they're not technically related to her, that doesn't matter. She's still a ministering angel to them. The point is, whatever our circumstance in life, married, unmarried, with children, without children, 
with children on this side or on that side of the veil, on the other side of the veil. The point is, we can participate with Christ in this effort to bless the little ones around us in that sphere of influence that, that God has granted to us, and as we move forward, our world desperately needs more people focused on how to help and bless and minister to these rising generations of children and youth and young adults as we move forward in the work. I want to echo what Tyler says, that families come in all shapes and sizes, and it's a matter of the Lord's will, and we shouldn't just be looking to the world for how we manage our families. We should be looking to God. And in my situation, my wife and I, we got married a little late. Um, she happily says that she was 29. I was 31, so we were a little bit older. So we actually both came from families of seven. We're like, we're going to have at least seven kids because we know how this happens. We have, we, we're going to be all these kids in the family. And uh, didn't happen. We had infertility and for many years couldn't have kids. And then through the miracle of adoption, we were able to bring two lovely children into our home. And it's amazing that whether by natural birth or by adoption, uh, children are a miracle. And it's interesting the love that expands. So our kids have birth parents who we're still in contact with who love these children, and we love them. And our children are loved by us. They're loved by God. And we tell our kids, you're kind of lucky because you guys get all this extra love from so many people. And we even tell them, you know, Jesus was adopted. So you're in good hands. The point here is that all of us are in a variety of circumstances, and it's beautiful to look at how Jesus greets the children. And whether we're in a family of many or few or none, ultimately, God doesn't count. Except he does count, where's our heart? Are we looking towards him? And on that note, let's remind ourselves that Though we are reading Scripture, Scripture means written words, Jesus is revealed not only by words, but also by deeds. So let's just write this out here. Now we are, in many ways, from the ancient past, dependent on the words of witnesses about the deeds of Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about scriptures, one of the reasons we love reading the scriptures with you, is to hear the words of God and through those words to have his deeds revealed. And we're seeing here in chapter 17 that, yeah, he taught all these words, but then we have these amazing deeds where his character is revealed to us. But we invite you to think about it's not only are the deeds of God or Jesus revealed in scripture, they are revealed in our lives. And Jesus has promised that the expanding of the kingdom of God is done through deeds of righteousness, through his deeds of righteousness, and through the deeds of righteousness that he inspires us. I encourage you to look around your life. What deeds have you seen where God has done incredible things in your life? That reveals his character. 
How have you seen him bless the lives of others? What other deeds have he, has he done to bring joy and salvation to people? That reveals God. So as we continue on in these chapters, we want you to think about what are the words and deeds that are revealed that help us to better understand and see the character of God. And we invite you to then ponder deeply which of those actually will help you in the next day or week to have greater trust in the Lord so you can feel the joy as the people felt here, which again is tied right back into his joy where he will have those tears, a fullness of joy. And I have to say, I've looked at that passage where he says, I have a fullness of joy. I thought, I would have thought when he got resurrected, he would have said, now I have a fullness of joy. Or when the atonement was complete, fullness of joy. And it's interesting, he says, and I don't mean to make too much of this, it's when he sees the joy of the people. His joy is full. And in some ways, that's what family and that's what the church is about. So this chapter 17 closes with Mormon telling us that there were 2,500 people in the audience uh, at the end of this experience. So that's everybody who was involved in 3 Nephi 11 plus any that they might have added through the sick and the afflicted and the children in chapter 17 who may or may not have been there originally. Point being, by the time we're finished here, 2,500 people have had one-on-one -on -one experience with Jesus, and by the way, their day isn't over yet. The day started here in the morning, and we're still not over. We've got one more chapter to go before day one is going to end. And he opens up chapter 18 by commanding that the disciples should bring some bread and wine unto him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could have miraculously uh, created and made for them bread and wine on that occasion like he is for this like he's going to do the next day on day two he's going to provide bread and wine miraculously for them so it's interesting when we try to pigeonhole Jesus or try to create a one-size-fits-all for how he always does things it's pretty hard to do because sometimes he'll if you look at his miracles in the New Testament, he uses a variety of ways to heal different people with different infirmities at different times and different needs. Same thing here with the sacrament. In chapter 18, he asks them to bring bread and wine. In the next chapter, he's going to provide it miraculously. Jesus does for us whatever is going to provide the greatest growth and development, period. That's what he always does. But it sometimes changes the practice or it looks different on the outside. And we've got to be comfortable with that as members of the church when, when things change, uh, either in our, in our worship services or in the temple ordinances or in our missionary service or the way we are instructed to do certain things, it's okay. It's, it's getting us another opportunity to reach out and help lift people to, to a new level. So in this case, you can picture these disciples in verse 2, they were gone to get the bread and wine. He commands that the multitude should, should sit upon the earth. Now, uh, I need to just point this out. If you're one of those disciples who ran home to get bread and wine to bring back to Jesus, let's just be really honest for a minute. I would feel really silly going home and getting any loaves of bread that I might have at home to then bring them and put them in front of Jesus. 
I would feel really inadequate, regardless of how good the bread is and how, how nice it looks or how freshly it was made. I would still feel uh, inadequate putting it in front of Jesus. Isn't this fascinating? If you consider this altar symbolism, so here are these people, they go home, they come back, and they place an offering, so to speak, on the altar in front of Jesus. In this case, let's focus first on the bread. So they put the bread there. Look, <clears throat> if you picture any loaf of bread and you put it in front of you on a, on a table and, and just look at it for a minute, the reality is, is what you've placed there is extremely mortal. It's flawed. What do I mean by mortal and flawed? I mean that if you just leave it there for six, seven, eight, nine days, just, just give it time, and eventually what's going to happen sooner than later, that bread is going to start growing things and decaying and breaking down, and ultimately and eventually you leave it there long enough and it becomes unrecognizable. It returns to dust. Hmm. Sounds an awful lot like everything else in mortality. It has a clock ticking. It's, it's going to eventually break down and return to its basic elements, regardless of how good it looks today. Now, where am I going with this? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only one who has the capacity to take our mortal offerings, our imperfect offerings, bless them, sanctify them, and then he doesn't keep them for himself. You'll notice what he did with their bread. He took it in verse 3, when the disciples had come with bread and wine, he took of the bread and he brake and blessed it, and he gave unto the disciples and commanded that they should eat. Jesus wasn't sitting there waiting for them to bring bread so he could eat. He was asking them to bring bread so that he could feed them in a way that they would be filled, <clears throat> not in a mortal way. So Jesus takes their offering and he gives it back to them <clears throat> and commands that they give it to the multitude, but you'll notice the difference. He gives them the bread with eternal uh, capacities attached to it. He gives them this sacramental bread which when they internalize it, that need never turn to dust. That need never die or decay or go away. That can keep propelling them to higher and higher positions on the covenant path through the rest of their life. <clears throat> you and I, we do things for the Lord all the time, but in reality, brothers and sisters, Jesus is asking us to bring those mortal offerings, whether it be our time, our tithes and offerings, our money, our, our donations to the poor in whatever format they may come, uh, our energies, our devotions. We put all of those things that are very mortal on the altar, and what happens is, is Jesus consecrates them, and through those they then get given back to us as well as spread to the multitude but in ways that eternally feed our soul, help us to grow up to become things that we aren't yet, 
but that we're striving to be more like Jesus. So, I love the fact that here they're eating this bread. Verse 4, it says, when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. So, now they're giving it out to the multitude. Notice what he tells them about that bread eating experience, that sacramental experience. Look closely at verse 7. And this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. I think what's happening here is Jesus is opening up our mind to multiple ways of looking at this bread, not just one. We're very, very comfortable with and accustomed to looking at the sacrament bread as a representation of Jesus' bruised, broken, and torn flesh through the infinite atonement, which is wonderful. Keep, keep celebrating the fact that he endured that for us. Don't, don't throw that away, but bring all that good that you have and add to it what he, the, the added instruction here that he gives them, that you're doing this in remembrance of my body which I have shown unto you. The body he's shown unto them is his resurrected, glorified body of flesh and bone, which ironically, ironically is the only resurrected body that we know of doctrinally that has any kind of scars in it. There's no, no way he can forget us, Isaiah says, because I have engraven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. It's beautiful imagery. So Jesus is saying, eat that bread in remembrance of the body which you've seen before me, which, which was bruised and broken and torn as part of the atonement pro atoning process, but now we also eat that bread in remembrance of this resurrection promise, the fact that that which was mortal can actually be eternal and will be through, through his, his merits and mercy and grace alone. And notice the promise at the end of verse 7. Uh, and it came, and it shall be a testimony unto the Father that you do always remember me, and if you do always remember me, you shall have my spirit to be with you. Uh, beautiful promise. Then he takes the, the wine. Look at verse, seven, or verse 11. This shall ye always do to those who repent and are baptized in my name, and ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood which I have shed for you, that you may witness unto the Father that you do always remember me. And if you do always remember me, you shall have my spirit to be with you. There he repeats it. So isn't that interesting? Here's the bread in remembrance of the body which I've shown unto you, and now here's the wine in remembrance of the blood which I have shed for you. So blood representing mortality, he has shed, he gave up his mortality for you. I've shed that blood for you. So between these two, you get the bread and the, the wine, one representing his immortal body standing there in front of them, the other, the mortal aspects that have been shed for you, you bring them together in this culminating experience of the sacrament. The symbolism is beautiful, that Christ is saying, yes, there's a lot that's, that's filled with, with uh, pain and disease and death and decay, all that which is mortal, but the promise is always remember me, you'll have my spirit to be with you, uh, and all these incredible things that have been done for you that you couldn't do for yourself are embodied and symbolized in these sacraments, these sacramental symbols of bread and, uh, and wine. 
I just have to throw out here one little thing. When Jesus instituted the sacrament with the apostles at the Last Supper, um, they're celebrating either a Passover meal or the day before the Passover, depending on whether you go with Matthew, Mark, and Luke or whether you go with John's timing. We're not going to get involved in that right now in that part of the discussion. The reality is, is as part of that Passover meal, every year uh, since Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, they've been celebrating this Passover meal. And during one part of that Passover meal sequence, there's a time when you take herbs. The closest herb we would have to hyssop might be parsley, and you dip it in really bitter herbs. Some families do it mild. When we do a Passover Seder service, we do it really, really hot. Horseradish sauce is what we use. When you put that in and then you put that in your mouth, it creates tears. It, it, it's painful. It's not fun. Then the next part of that sequence in the Seder services, you take a piece of matzah bread, those, these matzos, this unleavened bread, and you put it in. Brothers and sisters, it's remarkable how quickly that bread absorbs the bitterness out of, out of your mouth. It absorbs it, and you can't feel the pain anymore. It takes the tears away. Then when you swallow that bread, then you take a drink of that grape juice, and it replaces that kind of that bad taste in your mouth with this sweet taste. That's what I see happening here every week I go to the sacrament table. I bring in the bitterness of bondage to slavery of things mortal, the pain, the tears, the anguish, the frustrations, the struggles, and the first thing he offers us is a piece of bread, the bread of life. We put that in our mouth, and brothers and sisters, we're eating a lot more than just a piece of bread. We're taking into us this token of his perfected sacrifice in our behalf, and it absorbs the bitterness, and then he replaces that, that residue with this fresh drink to wash it all down to remind us of, uh, of who we can become. It's, to me, it's remarkable to see this process take place over and over and over again and to stop seeing the tray as just a little piece of bread and the other tray is just a cup of water, but to see a glorious promise of what Jesus is offering in exchange for what I brought to the sacrament table that day because everything I placed on the table is mortal and it's painful and it hurts but I, I walk away with that sweet forgiveness, that sweet hope, that sweet renewed faith that life is precious and it is worth fighting on. It is worth trying to, to live more in accordance with, with the way he showed us the example to live. I love that. Just feel the joy of the gospel as Tyler teaches those principles of truth about the sacrament. So as we partake of the sacrament, God gives that to us so that we can become like him. And let's look again at those promises in verse 7, verse 11. It's quite simple what Jesus asks us. Now, there's many things to do in the gospel, but fundamental to all is to remember. And what does he ask us to remember? To remember him. And if we do that, hey, remember him, you get the Spirit. And as we've talked in past videos, 
when you have the Spirit of God, that is prospering. It's part of that covenantal context. If we want to pro prosper in the land, we need to remember him, and we'll always have his Spirit. And if you have the Spirit with you, it's a member of the Godhead. You will retain a remission of your sins. That is what God wants for us. And he's like, listen, it's quite simple. Obviously, we know it's very hard. But truly, if we are remembering him in all things, it's much harder to be led astray. It's much harder to do wrong. It's much harder to commit sin if we are remembering him. Now, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we choose to forget. And the power is that every week, every week we are freely invited to return to this symbolic sacrificial table called the sacrament table where God, priests, and his people join together in a sacred meal where we put our mortality on the altar. Jesus has put his mortality on the altar. And all of that becomes eternal nature through the power of the atonement and the resurrection. So again, as we look at these verses, there's a lot going on in scriptures, but these are some of the most crucial and important for our salvation. Now, uh, I'm probably going to have to repent for skipping most of the rest of these verses in, uh, in chapter 18, but for the sake of time, I want to just focus on one other verse in this incredible chapter that is worth your time to dig deep and study in depth. Look at verse 24. Therefore, hold up your light, that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father, and ye all have witnessed. I love this, that he's, he's commanding us to hold up our light, and then he clarifies, by the way, I'm the light that you're holding up. I am the light of the world. And back in the sermon at the temple, he told them, I give unto you to be the light of the world. So ultimately, we become these reflecting lights for the ultimate light of the world. And uh, he, he promises us that, verse 25, you see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that you should come unto me that ye might feel and see, even so shall ye do unto the world." That is what our message to the world is, brothers and sisters. It's this simple yet most important and most profound invitation we can give is to people all over the world and especially those closest around us to come and see, to come and see of God's goodness, to come and taste of his goodness and to hold up that light. Uh, I love a statement that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland used many, many years ago in a general conference talk when he said, we must never let our faith be difficult to detect. Now, that's the end of day one. That's an amazing day. You, you can imagine putting all of that into one day and experiencing, wow. Well this cloud comes and overshadows Jesus and his disciples, and while it's there, he ascends to heaven. That night, this multitude disperses, and they're going all over the place trying to get people because he promised he was going to come tomorrow, so they're gathering people from all over. 
when day two begins. So, so this, from 11 to 18 is day one. When day two begins, Jesus isn't there right at the beginning, but they've been going all around gathering people, and there's a huge multitude that we're introduced to in chapter 19, and they gather, they split into 12 groups because there, there are too many of them. These are the 12 apostles listed in verse 4 that Jesus has chosen among the Nephites and Lamanites, and they're teaching the things that Jesus taught yesterday. And notice verse 7, the disciples did pray unto the Father also in the name of Jesus. Then they go down into the water, verse 11, Nephi went down and was baptized, and he came up out of the water and began to baptize. And then they start baptizing all the people after the, the disciples. Angels come down again and minister, and then Jesus came down, verse 15, and stood in the midst and ministered unto them. So thus begins day two, the ministry of Christ. Verse 17, and it came to pass that when they had all knelt down upon the earth, he commanded his disciples that they should pray. And behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God, which causes a lot of people to pause and ask a lot of questions. It's, this isn't uh, overly complicated here. Jesus is going to say um, later on why they're praying to him, so hold that thought. Verse 19, it came to pass that Jesus departed out of the midst of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth, and then he says his own prayer. So he removes himself a little bit from the group and then bows down and, and offers his prayer. Notice what he says, verse 20, Father, I thank thee that thou hast given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen and it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world." Sometimes we get, uh, we, we get this tendency to want to pat ourselves on the back thinking we're so good. Look at me, I chose the Lord. What he's basically saying here is, I chose you because of your belief in me, and I chose you first, and you responded to that choosing second, which it's not a big deal, but lest we start thinking that we're doing all of these things on our own, brothers and sisters, I can't take one step on the covenant path without Jesus helping me through his merits and mercy and grace. I There's never a time when I can look at heaven and say, I don't need your help on this one, I, I got this. Never can I do that. I can't do anything worthwhile. I can't go anywhere worthwhile without his help first and foremost and throughout that process. Notice he then goes on in verse 21, Father, I pray thee that thou wilt give the Holy Ghost unto all them that shall believe in their words. You could write it next to verse 21, that's me, that's us. We're included in verse 21, he's praying for us because we're believing in his words through the words of these people who have come to us through the Book of Mormon. Uh, look at the bottom part of verse 22, they pray unto me because I am with them. You'll notice the basic elements of prayer are to, to thank for things and to petition for things, to ask for things that you want. Well, they're doing that with Jesus. He's, he's standing there with them. Uh, notice that he says in verse 25, it came to pass that Jesus blessed them as they did pray unto him, and his countenance did smile upon them, and the light of his countenance did shine upon them, and behold, they were as white as the countenance, as 
the countenance and also the garments of Jesus. It's beautiful as he's smiling at them, as they're, as they're connecting with him, as they're communing with him. Uh, and then Jesus himself, uh, verse 27, turned from them again and went a little way off and bowed himself to the earth. Is it starting to sound familiar? Remember Jesus in Gethsemane went a little ways away from his disciples and prayed? How many times? Three occasions in Gethsemane? Look at verse 31, and it came to pass that he went again a little way off and prayed unto the Father, and tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed but they did understand in their hearts. So three times he's going to separate himself from the multitude, and there are other elements here that bring our minds back symbolically to Gethsemane and even some events on the cross if you read chapter 19 through that lens. Uh, in closing here, speaking of prayer, brothers and sisters, when I kneel down and pour my thoughts and my heart out to God, I'm not teaching God anything he doesn't already know. God's not up in his heavens saying, oh, I sure hope Tyler will talk to me today. I wonder, I wonder what he's really feeling. Brothers and sisters, God knows what I'm feeling better than I know what I'm feeling. He knows my past, he knows my present, and he knows my future. I'm not commanded to pray because God's curious about what I'm going through. I'm commanded to pray not for God's sake but for my sake. He has given me that command because it gives me an opportunity to commune with him and to learn some things about him and about myself. My prayers don't teach God anything. My prayers teach me a great deal. And by the way, there are some times in life when you're going to kneel down to pray and you won't have the words. Your tongue can't express what you feel what you want to share or what you want to ask of God. I'm just going to say it. Some of my most profound uh, experiences with prayer in life have involved very, very few words. Now, not in every case, but in enough that I've noticed a pattern. There are some times when I just groan within my soul, when I kneel down and it's, I just need to cry on his knees. I need to pour out my heart with feeling and connect in ways that don't involve the tongue speaking or the mind thinking through sentences of, of common phrases that we use in prayer, but where we really connect with the God who gave us life, who loves us more than we will ever love ourselves in this life, who understands us far better than we understand ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the command from Jesus that he gives to us to pray unto the Father in his name isn't for God's uh, benefit directly. It's for ours. Uh, we have the God of the universe who holds worlds without, <clears throat> worlds without number in his hand, but he holds you in his heart because you're his child and he loves you. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.